Good morning. It is great to see you all. My name is John Harris, and I'm privileged, along with uh, Julian, to be an elder at Central. And it's wonderful to be back with you. And it's also great to see so many kids with us. Kids, do you know anybody famous? No? Your mom, yeah. <laughs> right answer. Um, well, in, in my family, as far as I know, there's only one famous person. And believe it or not, if fame is measured by how much exposure you get in the newspaper, my grandmother, well, she was really famous. And uh, the reason why she was famous was that just before she passed, at uh, just before 109, she was thought to be the oldest or at least the second oldest person in BC. And she was incredible. Even at, at 108 years of age, she was with it. She had this uh, witty tongue. Her mind was sharp. Oh, yeah, her hip was hurting a bit and, uh, and her hearing was going. But you know what she would do if she didn't like your joke at the, uh, at the Christmas dinner? She'd pick up her bun and throw it at you. <laughs> she, was, she was something else. And the newspapers loved interviewing her. You can see her here on her uh, 107th birthday, front page of the Vancouver Sun. And many, many articles were written about her as well. And, uh, and we... We were just amazed at her health. She was so vibrant. We thought, oh, Grandma, if you can just hold on for six more years, you will break into that august special rank of being one of the top 100 people uh, who have lived past 114 years of age. And, oh, but just before her 109th birthday, she got this annoying bleeding ulcer, and she passed. As one writer puts it, she passed by times, I love this, times relentless melt. Well, times relentless melt is going to be our focus this morning, and we're going to work through one of the most famous stories, probably the most well-known story in all of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37, and we're going to look at death squarely in the eye. And I want all of us, and kids, can you help me remember this? By the time we're done, in about three hours, no, I, I've got to get over to Agassiz. I want you to remember the meaning of Ezekiel's vision of the valley of death. Number two, I want you to understand how the power of the Holy Spirit gave Israel new life. And the third thing I want you to know is, is that that same Holy Spirit that brought Israel back to life can live and indwell in us and give life to us, and now here's the complicated thing, in the different kinds of death that we face. All right, let me explain. I'll have to explain that. But let's read our passage. It's an amazing passage. This is the word of the Lord. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out of the spirit, out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. 
And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you will live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling And the bones came together, bones to bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. That's like like cartilage. And then the flesh had come upon him, like the muscles. And the skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel, Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, use these words to clear away any misconceptions we have you. May your word be proclaimed through your power in the power of the spirit. Open our hearts dear Father, to receive your truth. Amen. So this is Ezekiel's vision in the valley of death. What's a vision, kids? What is a vision? It's a, it's a, special, it's a special sight that God brings to you. And all throughout the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel had six separate visions. And look what it says in the beginning of verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me. Now, what what does it mean that the hand of the Lord is upon Ezekiel? It means when the hand of the Lord is upon you, look out. God is in control here. The power of God is about to be released in an important way. Now, God orchestrates... Your li- each of our lives uniquely and differently. But for Ezekiel, when the hand of the Lord was on him, his method was very dramatic. Six times we are told in Ezekiel, the hand of the Lord was on him. And what that meant was that he was literally snatched away to another location for a specific assignment. Kids, have you heard about Philip, how he was snatched away to see the Ethiopian eunuch? Apostle Paul, the same thing. But here, the Lord snatches him away and brought him, 
in the spirit of the Lord and set him down in a valley. But it was not like one of the beautiful valleys around here. How many of you are hikers? Yeah, yes. Gorgeous valleys to hike in here. It was not like that. (laughs) He brought him to a valley that had apparently thousands and thousands of bones. And we're told that God led him around and gave him a tour of this valley with all of the bones. Look at verse two, it says, he led me around. And twice in this verse, it says, behold. When you hear the word behold, it's mean like, pay attention. And behold, there were very many bones on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. What what do dry bones mean? It means they've been dead for a long time. But who were they? Well, we're not told. Not told yet, at least. But we don't have to guess the meaning of the vision because in verse 11, Ezekiel explicitly says, or God tells Ezekiel explicitly, he says, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. So these bones represent the nation Israel. And these valley, this valley full of skeletons symbolizes a nation that has been wiped out. It's been extinguished. Now, when you read through scripture and when you look at nature, there are many different kinds of death. And the death of a nation is one of many, many different forms of death we find in the Bible. Of course, there's physical death. (laughs) For my grandmother, that came at age 108. But there's also a second death, the death after God's great throne judgment at the end of time for those that are not saved. But there are more different kinds of death as well. There's the, there's, we can be alive physically, but Romans 8 tells us that we can be dead in our sins and because of the flesh, because of what Romans 8 calls the mind set on flesh. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But besides these overlapping individual deaths that consume us, there are, there are larger forms of group death, corporate death. There's the death of nations, the death of civilizations. Think of all of the ancient empires and the civilizations that are gone and are now nothing more than memories. Have, anybody, have you met an Edomite recently? Um, typically, as I love the study of history, and typically... History's empires, a pretty typical length of span is about 250 years, and, and then they're gone. And there's no, there are no empires left today. There's only just under 200 nations, and currently three of them are at the top of the pecking order, three superpowers, which are currently in various stages of decline and growth. But besides the death of empires, the death of nations, there are dead churches as well. Boy, listening to Cecily lead and you sing, this church is not dead. But think of Jesus when he condemned the church at Sardis and he said, you have the reputation of being alive but are dead. Now put it together. And all of these different forms of death, it is a fact that that without divine intervention, death is the natural order of things. 
Death is not just likely, it is inevitable. And we're not talking about just plants and animals and humans, but even death on a galactic scale. Stars. Astronomers can see them. I can see them with my telescope. Stars that run out of fuel. See these, these photos of stars that go from these big red giants when they run out of fuel and then they slough off their gas and die by creating these beautiful, colorful patterns we call nebulae. So if all you have in your view of the world is the materialistic natural order absent God, then it is not opinion, it's indisputable that in the end, death will always have the last word. It's not a cynic, but it's a realist who warns, quote, time is like a drug. Too much of it, and it kills you. What is your life in the naturalistic-only worldview? You are, quote, a little bag of thinking water held up briefly by fragile accumulations of calcium. And we have to agree with the Roman philosopher Marcus Aurelius that all of us are creatures of a day, the rememberer and the remembered alike. The time is at hand when you will have forgotten everything, and the time is at hand when all will have forgotten you. Always reflect that soon you will be no one and nowhere. Very depressing without God. And here in Ezekiel 37, these bones represent an Israel that has vanished, a nation that has disappeared. And from a human perspective, who could disagree with that? By the time when Ezekiel was having this vision, several hundred years ago in around 700 AD, the 10 northern tribes had been crushed by the Assyrians and had disappeared. And about 150 years later, during Ezekiel's time, catastrophe ravaged the southern tribes, ravaged Jerusalem, and much of the population was either deported or killed or they, they fled. Jerusalem was reduced to rubble. The temple was destroyed. The king's sons were even executed in front of their father. From a human perspective, Israel is dead. It is finished. Verse 11 laments, laments, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut up, cut off. But, kids, those dried up bones are just the introduction for what God wants to teach Ezekiel, and we move on to our second point, and this is what I want you to hear. The Spirit of God gives life to Israel through the prophecies of Ezekiel. Let's go to verse 3. God interrupts his tour around the valley of this disgusting desolation with a question. He says in verse 3, said to me, and these are the only words, five words in this passage that Ezekiel is recorded as saying. He says to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I love Ezekiel's reply. <laughs> it shows humility. It shows dependency simultaneously. And he puts the responsibility for an answer directly on God. 
Can you read, somebody read what he said up there? He replies, what? Let me see it, one of you kids. He says, oh Lord, you know. But then, interestingly, as the narrative continues, God turns it around and shifts some of the responsibility back on Ezekiel for an answer. He gives Ezekiel a job, he gives him a task. And his job is to prophesy. To prophesy means to speak with God's words. Verse 4, then he said to me, prophesy over these bones. Now, maybe some of you in your Sunday school lessons know that the prophets often were given very, very unusual assignments. (laughs) It's almost like it was this street theater that was shocking to wake up the Israelites to help them to see that God was angry at them. Before, one of, believe it or not, one of Ezekiel's jobs was to eat a scroll that's written on, eat a scroll, and cook his food over human feces as warning that God was angry. But now, in what is his most extraordinary assignment, he's asked to preach to a congregation of skeletons. How would you like that job? Go to a graveyard and preach. Would you like that? (laughs) One day, maybe you'll be up here. Yeah, maybe you'll be up here preaching. God's spokesmen often had really difficult audiences, no question about it. Uh, Stephen and even Jesus had uh, audiences who didn't like the truth and picked up stones to throw at them. Uh, One of Paul's audience, Eutychus, um, got a little bit tired during one of Paul's long sermons and fell asleep, fell out of a window and died. Paul had to raise him from the dead through God's power. But This is the most difficult audience, preaching to a graveyard. Verse 5, it says, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Bones, hear the word of the Lord. How could that be? You know what, your inner ear has this bone called the cochlea bones? I mean, these skeletons, bones were dysfunctional. They were bleached. They were dry, but God continues. He will cause breath to enter you. And now we're going to read the next few verses. And I want you to count up how many times the word breath or wind appears. And this is really important, not just for this story, but for our lives, as I'll explain in a moment. How many times does breath or wind appear? Let's read through it. Thus says the Lord God to these bones... Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and cause flesh to come upon you. I will cover you with skin and put breath in you. And you shall live and know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. All those bones coming together. Bone to bone. Must have been quite the clatter. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and sin had, skin had covered them, and there was no, but there was no breath in them. Now all of the bodies were intact, but they were not alive. What's missing? 
Then comes the second prophecy, the second command to the prophecy, this time to the breath. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Nine times, did you get nine? Nine times breath or wind is mentioned, and what? is this breath that has the power to transform a valley of bleached bones into a living, breathing army. It's the same breath that breathed into the form of a man from the dust of the ground who was our first ancestor. Who was that? Who was our first ancestor who was formed from the dust of the ground? Adam, that's right. And it was the same person that breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and that man became a living creature. Now, we as human beings can only, in our bodily functions, reproduce human life. But that breath, that wind, creates a new divine life in us which we are incapable of generating. And this was what Jesus was getting at when he was talking to Nicodemus in John 3. He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Human beings can only produce human life. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. This wind, this word wind, is the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament Ruach, the Old Testament word for wind and spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You you hear its sound. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. This wind, this spirit that brought to life this army is the same Holy Spirit that gives us the life of our new birth. And it's the same wind, the same rushing wind that was poured out on the day of Pentecost when, preach, when Peter was preaching to give life to the Gentiles. That breath and that resurrected army, filling that resurrected army, is nothing less than the Holy Spirit whose one of his main functions is to crush death and to give new life. That's what the Holy Spirit does with death with all of its different forms. You see this through scripture, right? How is Jesus conceived? Well, we're told he was conceived through the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. The angel told Mary, remember what the angel said to Mary? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, the Holy Spirit imparts a life that nothing in our biology, nothing in our mental psychology can touch. You can have all of the self-esteem in the world. You can be the most positive person, but you cannot 
reproduce or create the life that the Holy Spirit gives. And now through this vision, Ezekiel sees that the bones resurrected into living persons was assigned that through the Holy Spirit, the dead nation of Israel would be brought back to life and once again live in that land that had been promised. All right, so where have we come so far? We started by showing how the vision of Ezekiel 37 reminds us that in our natural state, we as human beings are dead. And we have seen that the power of the Holy Spirit is, has this life-giving ability to resurrect an entire argument, uh, army. But now we're going to come to our final point. Now, carrying this life-giving power of the Holy Spirit forward, the third truth we want to emphasize is that we all desperately need the Spirit of God to neutralize two further kinds of death that poison us all. One death is our current spiritual death caused by, follow me, the mind of the flesh. And the second is our future physical death. So for our spiritual death, the Bible teaches us in Ephesians 2, it says we are all dead. All of us were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. And I want to finish up by looking at Romans 8. Romans 8 unpacks the meaning of this death further. Let's look at it. Verse 5. I want you to notice as we read this, the basic parting of the ways, the basic difference between the death of the flesh, which is contrasted with the life of the spirit. Let's read it. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Okay, so those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. What does it mean to set your mind on the things of the flesh? Well, the flesh here is not just talking about our body. It's not just talking about something like lust. It Rather, setting your mind on the flesh means putting your mind, putting the focus of attention on anything other than God, primarily. So let's keep reading. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. There's the parting of the ways. Your mind, your focus, the mind is not just, you know, your brain. It's your attention. It's your focus. It's where, where you're where you're putting your energy into in your thought life, in your actions. The mind, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And notice the consequences in verse 6. For the mind set on the flesh, on anything other than God, is death. But, the mind, but, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. This is the great choice that all of us are making day by day. Think of all of the complex decisions that you have to make in your life. Uh, 
piddly little things like taking out the garbage and brushing your teeth and clipping your nails to big choices, where you're going to live, who you're going to marry, um, what your career is going to be. Underneath all of these complex decisions is a basic choice. Will you set your mind on the things of the flesh, which is death, or set your mind on the spirit, which, as we have seen, gives life? If we set our minds on the things of the flesh and anything outside of God, we are dead. Prayer seems boring. We just want to run away from Bible study. And when people talk about God, we just, no. But if we set our minds on the Spirit, then suddenly we have the life of Christ living inside of us. And that life in Christ gives us the DNA of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's keep going. Verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And this is a, and, and, and this is a, this is a stunning, stunning verse. Because if, verse 10, it says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, this is really strange. What Paul is saying here is, is that we can be alive in a body that's dying. But at the same time, we can have the life of God living inside of us because of righteousness. So when we have the life of Christ in us, our body, our body is still dying. It starts, human decay starts at about age 30. And, uh, and, and it accelerates, especially after, after age 60. And I know that <laughs> firsthand. So you can be alive bodily at the same time, but dead spiritually, but, but uh, alive bodily um, and dying bodily, but uh, um, alive in your spirit at the same time. But that's not the end of the story. And I want you just to follow along here in verse 11. It says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So you not only can have the life that the Holy Spirit gives you right now, but after your body decays and dies, if you have the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead in you, he's going to pass on to you what he did for Christ. Jesus, as he was lying in the tomb, on that third day, 
was resurrected back to this glorious life. Where was the power for that? How did that happen? We're told, as we would expect, that it was the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, of him who raised Jesus from the dead, who raised Jesus from the dead, and that same Holy Spirit, that same power that was exerted on the dead corpse of Christ, will one day, if he resides in you, resurrect your body and the body of your loved ones. And this is where the trumpets start to play. Amazing truth. So he will raise through the Holy Spirit, that same spirit, your body, just like he did for the bones in Ezekiel's vision. Well, maybe uh, I can think some of you may be, might be asking the same question I would be asking if I were sitting in the chairs. I'd be saying, well, this sounds wonderful, but how do I know if that life-giving power of the Holy Spirit is residing in me? Well, that's the subject of another sermon, but know this. On the authority of the word of God, the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit is the birthright of every Christian. In the past two years, we have buried my mother and then my only uncle and a few months ago, buried my father. How do I know that my mother and father are my parents? Well, you can take a DNA test. You can look at uh, my picture and look at the parent, my parents' pictures and you can see the family resemblances. How do you know if the Holy Spirit, the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit is in your life? You look for family resemblances. You look for the DNA of Jesus' life in you. You look for that new nature that you know doesn't come from your goodness, doesn't come from your ability to conjure up nice things. You look for that nature that you know has been imparted and given to you that resembles family resemblance to Jesus Christ. Fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And the second sign of the Holy Spirit's life in you is an increasing concern as you age, an increasing concern about sin in your life. In the words of Paul, those who belong to Christ Jesus have dealt with their sin by crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. If you're sensing that new nature, and if you sense this war in you that requires you to crucify your flesh with its passions and desires, that's a really, really good evidence that you have the Holy Spirit living within you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the searchlight of your word 
that shines in our lives. May we not be just hearers of your word, but doers as well. Give us the power of your spirit to overcome the death of our sinful nature this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen.